Welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. And also, as relevant to my guest today, I am Senior Editor at New Lines Magazine, which is just turned four months old and is aiming to be a kind of New Yorker for the Middle East, platforming Arab and Muslim and Middle Eastern voices who might otherwise not get published in mainstream publications in the West. And my colleague and friend and guest is Faisal Itani, who is, I guess, one of the founding editors of New Lines and sort of the brains, well, half the brains behind the operation, the other half being my co-author, Hassan Hassan. I brought him on today for several reasons. The first is he's Lebanese-American, and today is a pretty somber day because a, a Lebanese civil society activist and scholar, Lokman Slim, was assassinated in Beirut. Most likely the culprit is Hezbollah or one of its accomplices or affiliates. Faisal, I think you, you know or you knew Lokman, right? I mean, and he's a very famous guy and, and he's famous because he also, you know, he was a, a Shia critic of a Shia militia stroke terrorist organization, which is no easy thing to be anywhere in the Middle East, but uh, least of all in, in Lebanon. Talk a little bit about him and what he represented. Thanks for having me on. He's an extraordinary guy. Uh, we had done some some work together last year, I believe it was, on issues related to Hezbollah. The thing that's most significant about him is uh, not only was he a critic of Hezbollah, but he was a Shia critic of Hezbollah in a community that very tightly monitored, penetrated, controlled by Hezbollah. Not to say everybody loves Hezbollah, but you know, it's very it's a kind of very intimate relationship between the militia and uh, the community. So that puts him in a special position. Uh, he was extraordinarily outspoken, quite belligerent. And the thing that impressed me, frankly, the most was he had sort of plopped down his office in the middle of Dahli in South Beirut, which is, you know, to use the cliche, a Hezbollah, very much a Hezbollah stronghold. Yeah. Where, uh, you know, their Beirut base of operations and essentially the main node in the network is located. Uh, and he refused to move it. Uh, so he was running this kind of NGO activism shop that highlighted Hezbollah's abuses, among other things in the country. But he was certainly very very outspoken, uh, and he had received a repeated threats, really, including on his life, literally, if he were to continue his, his activities. He was obviously stubborn, and uh, he didn't change his behavior, and apparently he was, he was killed. He was coming back from South Lebanon to Beirut when he was shot four times, and his body was discovered a few hours ago. And you wrote a really haunting and elegant piece for New Lines, uh, I think it came out last week, we titled it Occupational Hazards, and it's about your growing up in Lebanon during the Syrian military occupation and the kind of strange sort of political and cultural climate that persisted at that time. And you open the piece with a, a car accident that nearly killed a guy. You were in the car with your friend coming back from, I think, a racing session or exercise or whatever. You can get into that. Yeah, race circuit, yeah. You hit a, a Syrian who was living in Lebanon, and you were detained by the, the police, and they told you you'd have been better off killing the guy. It would result in a lesser penalty or lesser headache, I guess, for the bureaucratic structures of the state. This is in having you come into the Zoom session that we record this, and I said it's sort of like a sinister Alice in Wonderland, the region sometimes, and this piece really kind of opened up a lot of 
past experiential trauma from that period during the Civil War and then the after effects of it. Talk a little bit about this piece and what it was like growing up under occupation. I mean, this is obviously still relevant to, gosh, I mean, what we're seeing in the region today, whether in Syria or in Iraq or Yemen, it's obviously very relevant too to America's foreign policy trajectory, which we will get into later in this interview in the broad strokes, because there's a lot to discuss with respect to that. So so describe, if you will, the piece and sort of what you were trying to conjure with it. Yeah, Michael, I should say, you know, I grew up in a, a very particular time in, in Lebanon politically, right after the civil war ended during the Syrian military and intelligence occupation of the country, the height of it, if you will. It really had extended for about 30 years. But Within those years, you know, as a young man who's slightly political, you're always exposed to this stuff. But uh, I seldom write anything personal. Uh, So I wrote this as a kind of segue into describing this historical chapter, but also because I thought it was sometimes useful if you've accumulated a bunch of strange experiences in a country where the people around you don't find them particularly strange. I thought it was was nice to put it in a place with a wide readership where you could sort of get feedback from people who maybe were not there, did not experience it. But also, and what this is one of the most gratifying parts about this, is uh, all these Lebanese people who got in touch with me and they said, well, you know, no one is writing about that period of time, despite its profound importance for where we are right now, how much it explains. So thank you for writing it. And in fact, a lot of people said, and actually, let me tell you about my crazy thing that happened, uh, including with the Lebanese police several times. So I was just trying to capture a historical moment and kind of link it to where we are today. It could have been any number of stories, really. This is not a particularly singular event. And there, of course, people have experienced worse. I have, others have. So that's where I was coming from. But it kind of, I mean, obviously, you know, what I alluded to, the fact that the guy survived was more of a liability than had he perished. It upends so many just sort of intuitive assumptions. I mean, he was from the country that was the occupying force in Lebanon, and yet he was considered Christ. I mean, not even a third-class citizen by the lights of the uh, Lebanese police, right? I mean, uh, you know, one doesn't think that way usually. Usually the occupier is in an elevated station and the occupied or the subaltern population. How did that work? What was that about? Yeah, you're not the first person actually to highlight this to me. And it's a good question. It's a paradox I actually hadn't noticed until I was asked about it. But yes, the, the truth of the matter is when the Syrians consolidated political control over the country, they obviously managed to penetrate the government and the legislative branches and everything. And we in Lebanon passed a series of laws that essentially allowed you to work in Lebanon without a work permit, without residency and things of that sort. So the place was flooded with uh, low-wage laborers, essentially, took the jobs Lebanese people didn't want to do and brought the money back into Syria. One of the purposes, of course, from a strategic point of view for the Syrian regime was they had a lot of unemployed people and uh, they needed them to be working, you know, sort of as a kind of pressure valve socially, and also that it brought a lot of hard currency back into Syria. Uh, So yes, you had this weird kind of juxtaposition of this kind of underclass of people that everybody hated because at the very basic level, they represented economic hegemony, but also brought, you know, to the Lebanese, all these sort of prejudices against, you know, lower class people and, and what have you. But also everybody understood that they were there 
directly as a result of the more hegemonic things happening in high politics, which was the Syrian domination of, uh, of the country. And because Lebanese people, uh, by nature of the situation, could not sort of punch upwards and hit the Syrian, you know, the apparatus, the people who got the brunt of it were the people who were just normal workers. Yeah. That's what was happening in that moment. And it's also kind of a reflection of how rotten and corrupt uh, these institutions also had become, the extensions of the Lebanese state in this environment. Right. It's a great piece for many reasons, the pros and, and you know, obviously the, the story, but it sort of complicates and punctures a thing that we've all been dealing with in this space, which is narrative, right? Narrative and the Middle East do not really go together. They are, it's like oil and water, even though everyone's got a narrative about the Middle East and it's including and especially those from the Middle East. One of the other things we, we ran recently was a, another essay by Fred Hoff, a former ambassador at large under the Obama administration, who's dealing with the Syria file. And he basically is offering a piece of advice to the incoming Biden White House, which is essentially don't get any big ideas, right? Don't come in with sort of grand designs on what you're going to do in the region. Start by dealing with people. And almost it's a policy of mitigation rather than strategic projection of any kind. And, you know, one of the things I think we've all been wrestling with the Arab Spring turned 10 years old this year, and it kind of passed with a whimper. And nobody, I think, looks back and sees this as the um, the realization of great hopes and the potential of, of what all of these countries came to the table with. You wear two hats. You're, you're an essayist, but you're also a policy analyst, and you write about what the U.S. government ought to be doing in various spaces in, in the region. I survey the, the landscape here. And, you know, you've got an incoming president who wants to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal. Fine. I understand the, the motivation for that. But in so doing, there will have to be some kind of accommodation with the Iranian regime, which just today, one of its diplomats was sentenced to, I think, 20 years for plotting a terrorist attack in Paris, which was interdicted by three different European countries. Iran is, it's a more complicated place perhaps than it was in 2015. Qasem Soleimani is no longer there and he was a singular figure in certainly um, exporting the revolutionary doctrine abroad and also a political figure, not just an intelligence one. What should we try, or perhaps I, I should phrase it this way, what should we try not to do coming in and, you know, with a new government in America and a new kind of attempt to reset or reposition ourselves as a, a leader in the region? I mean, what would be your advice if you were in the White House? That's a tough question. When I think about the, the JCPOA and all this package of stuff that's attached to it and, and the baggage, you know, in terms of the policy debate that's attached to it, I have to reflect on the first time we tried this in 2015 and what happened. Back then, frankly, I opposed the JCPOA full stop uh, because there were things going on in the region that I felt because the Obama administration associated the JCPOA as a sort of package deal with the Iranians of reaching some sort of reconciliation with them. A, I knew that was impossible. B, there were things in play that we should not have compromised. I think Syria is, is probably the, the most important one at the time. But fast forward five years, uh, things are different for six years. Things are different now. There was less flux in some of these theaters than there was before. And I also think some of the administration, although not all, is kind of has been disabused of this idea that there's some sort of bright future waiting for us with the Iranian regime. Not everybody, and we don't know who's got the upper hand in this conversation, but I'm slightly more comfortable with that 
And I understand also that if the Iranians continue on this track, we're going to have to sort of reckon with it with in a much higher stakes situation. One of the things I've changed my mind about also over the past few years since I immigrated here and started working in policy is I now have a much lower point of view, much lower appraisal and opinion of how this government in America is functioning and making and executing policy. So I have severe doubts over our abilities to good policy and pay the price and generate enough domestic consensus to pull it through. Uh, so maybe that's kind of making me a bit jaded about how much we can escalate with uh, the Iranians. But having said that, I don't think, you know, the United States is a very powerful country. It's more powerful than Iran and Iran knows that. And so we don't have to go and give them everything they want. And I think we still have a little more leeway to play around than I fear this administration might perceive. I'll give you a good example is the Qasr Soleimani assassination. A, I did not expect it, and it was so unexpected that I wouldn't have advocated for it, but it happened, and frankly, I thought it was a good idea, and I think the Iranians deserve that to be smacked that way. So this kind of thing where you allow yourself room to negotiate about something like a nuclear uh, treaty, but you still kind of have you recognize this adversarial relationship with the Iranians as a broad strategic doctrine. I support it. Once we go down into these little details, like what do we do about Syria? What do we do about Lebanon? I have obviously more complicated points of view. This is where I stand on this particular issue, I think. The United States, to a large extent, I mean, okay, not to, I shouldn't say a large extent, but to some extent, a greater extent than I might have liked or that you might have liked, has been written out of the conversation, especially with regard to Syria, where it seems like the two main powers that will be responsible for brokering some kind of settlement, or at least coming to some kind of modus vivendi once the United States is gone, are Turkey and Russia. And Turkey's power projection is, perhaps Turkey experts disagree, but to me is unexpected, has been surprisingly successful, whether you're looking at Libya or the concluded war in Karabakh, where they were integral in helping Azerbaijan retake all of this uh, territory from Armenia. And indeed, I mean, standing up the former Free Syrian Army, now the Syrian New Army or National Army, rather, the acronym. National yeah, the Army. The acronyms yeah. always get to me. It was a Syrian New Army. It point. was a Syrian New Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. It's it's a Monty Python sketch. And these guys, I mean, essentially they're, they're mercenaries, not very different from what Russia does with the Wagner group, but they're being deployed hither and yon, right? And, and these are the guys who are going to be, whether we like it or not, the military component of the mainstream Syrian opposition. Where is the space for the United States? You know, crisis group just put out a report suggesting that, well, the real place to watch and the real place where the U.S. can have some diplomatic role is in Idlib, where, you know, you've got 3 million Syrians living. The Turks do not want to see a refugee crisis if the regime backed by Iran and Russia make a real concerted push to invade Idlib and retake it. And Idlib is essentially governed now by HTS, the former affiliate of Al-Qaeda, whose leader, Mohammed al-Jalani, is now on a press tour, it seems. He's doing a big PBS frontline exclusive in a suit, if not a tie, essentially rebranding himself or repitching himself as a non-jihadist, somebody who's at war with both Al-Qaeda and ISIS, and hey, let's do business. And the idea of a former Al-Qaeda affiliate being delisted as an American designated terrorist entity, also a Turkish designated terrorist entity and a UN National Security Council doesn't, is, would seem completely outlandish and far-fetched, but maybe not. I mean, you know, it, it's 2021 and stranger things have happened. Like, what can we do at this point? I have PTSD from covering Syria for 10 years. 
I don't pay as close attention to it as I used to. There are certain things I know that I don't want to do or that I would not advocate this country doing, including just basically washing our hands of the whole thing and saying, screw it, just hand it all over to Russia and the Iranians and the regime. Let the Kurds make some kind of concordat with these guys. And that's the end of it. And I just feel like that's, I've described it as naivete and stupidity dressed up as strategic wisdom and realism, right? You know, the idea that, oh, okay, let the Russians sort of have their quagmire. It's not a quagmire. They got in five years ago. Everyone thought it was going to be Afghanistan 2.0. And in, in fact, they ate our lunch for us because they ended up wiping out US-backed rebel groups. And now, I mean, they essentially control useful Syria. And as much of a, a sieve as this country is on their financial resources, you know, they met Russia. I mean, they always come up with money because they're not they're not coming by it in a transparent above board fashion. And I think Putin would love nothing better than to retake all of the northeast of Syria. I know I'm drawing on and on here, but these are the details that we all have to consider. Like, what is your broad strokes perspective? What can America do? And especially if we adhere to Fred Hoff's sage wisdom, don't think big, think small and see where, where that leads you. Yeah, you know, Michael, like you, I've, you know, been working on this topic for a long time and I've accumulated my own baggage about it. But uh, asking these questions, you're really kind of asking about six or seven policy questions that are interconnected, but different, different issues. The geopolitical issue, which is the one you started with about the role of the foreign actors and, and what they can and can't do, what we should or shouldn't be happy about. I agree with you. It's not a quagmire for the Russians. It's not that expensive to have these kinds of wars. Because really, these are wars between like juveniles overseen by adults, you know, so to speak. They're easy in terms of achieving your basic objectives, which the Russians have already. I do believe that at the end of the day, the local or more proximate powers are more important in Syria than we are. I do believe that. And, you know, it's largely Turkey and Iran. I mean, let's be honest. The problem is the second you open up this discussion, the Iranians, obviously, we don't want them to have all of Syria and do whatever they want for obvious reasons, unless you're really on the fringe of this debate. But uh, the Turkey, the second you start talking about Turkey, uh, you open up this entire can of worms, because this question of Turkey's role in Syria from a geopolitical perspective, suddenly, you now have to talk about the fact that Erdogan is awful. The officials say all this stuff about us, that they fight the Kurds, which we're partnered with, that they've you know committed atrocities through their proxies in, in northern Syria. So it becomes very hard to talk about Turkey as a potential good thing, so to speak. But as I see it, there cannot be a, at least even sustainable, minimally acceptable outcome in Syria without the Turks, because they're the only ones with that much skin in the game and uh, that much power project, power projection. So I think this areas, areas of Idlib, areas of Northern Syria, yeah, I mean, we need them, unless we're gonna take them ourselves, we need them to have them. We need to, in the process, minimize the ugly things that they're trying to do. And we need to do this even if Erdogan is awful. And frankly, to be honest with you, as a kind of historical counterfactual, I'm not sure any other Turkish leader would have behaved that differently than Erdogan has in Turkey, because Turkey has interests in Syria, full stop. And that's the fact of the matter. The three other big things you mentioned, uh, Idlib and HDS and, uh, and the man in a suit. So I don't think we need to have this delisting conversation just yet. It's very acrimonious. It'll bring out all the usual stupidity that comes out in these debates on the Washington side. And frankly, I'm just not completely convinced that the guy is not a problem. So uh, we'll see about that. But uh, for now, I'm 
generally not a fan of the pure CT mentality where we go around killing people, you know, just because that's the kind of default mode of what our national security apparatus has done for the past 20 years. And uh, Idlib, at the end of the day, it's between them and the Turks, unless we want many, many, many more people to die. Right. And that's just the strategic situation on the ground. We can revisit it in five to 10 years, but that's a status quo that's better than the alternative, in my opinion. The question of what we should do as the United States. Yeah, look, I kind of, there are aspects of the deployment in Syria that are a bit silly and uh, that are a bit contradictory and problematic. How do we reconcile our situation with the Kurds, with our situation with Turkey? What are we doing in Tanf Air Base, et cetera, et cetera. So there's some weird stuff going on, but, you know, it's pretty, it's a small deployment. It's easy. We're surrounded by people who frankly won't hurt us or can't hurt us that much. Uh, so I say, whatever, you know, hold on to it until you have a better idea. The one thing I'm kind of conflicted about, Michael, is the Caesar sanctions. And I admit, let me premise it by saying, I know this is not Syria's main problem or the main reason people in Syria are screwed. Having said that, you know, this open-ended broad sanctions as a push towards an outcome, a Syrian negotiation, whatever, that's so unlikely that it's essentially impossible. I'm not sure about the strategic utility. And frankly, even if we're leaving aside a moralistic foreign policy, I'm not a foreign policy moralist, but I do believe that if you're doing something that's going to harm people, you better have a sort of goal, an achievable goal in mind that makes us better. The Caesar sanctions are in lieu of what really would have changed the dynamic, which is to escalate militarily, whether at the covert level or at the overt level, right? I mean, he, look, here's the problem I have even from the counterterrorism perspective, which I agree with you. I think th this has become sort of the idiot savant mode of American foreign policy thinking, like we have no, no role to play in, I mean, I don't believe in nation building at all, but no role to play in terms of you know, great power struggles or backing allies against enemies. It's just drone them and whack them and stack them and leave, right? Okay, in the last few years, what have we seen? We have seen Russia being accused by the US intelligence community of not only backing and arming the Taliban in Afghanistan, but paying them money for bounties on American and British soldiers. You have seen Russian entities designated as terrorist organizations. You have seen, I mean, Iran, as according to the U.S. State Department, the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism, the number two guy in Al-Qaeda killed walking freely through the streets of Tehran earlier last year. So the argument to me, you know, get out of Syria and, and let everybody else sort it out. The United States, which has fought now for 20 years, this so-called global war on terror, is going to cede its counterterrorism portfolio to Russia and Iran and I didn't even mention Bashar al-Assad's historical relationship with all manner of terrorist groups, whether it's Hezbollah or Salafi jihadist groups, including Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which he facilitated the transfer of into Iraq to blow up American troops and also Iraqi civilians. It just seems to me completely illogical and backward, even if that's your only prism for looking at things. You know, perhaps will Russia and Iran decide, oh, okay, America very kindly handed us a third of this country to do what we, what we please with, let's not start getting up to our usual tricks and creating proxies to go blow things up with plausible deniability to hurt the Americans. Let's thank them. I, I'm sorry, I, I just think that that's a little too beneficent for these 
regimes. I'm willing to have the argument in the debate. I just, again, I kind of, my posture as somebody who's watched this space for not as long as you have, um, because you're from the region, and, and I mean, you've been doing this longer than I, but I more have an instinct about what not to do rather than what to do at this point. Do you know what I mean? And again, maybe that's a, a reflection of just the cynicism and, you know, kind of moral and intellectual exhaustion that comes with doing this kind of work. No, no, actually, to be honest with you, I think this is also a kind of wisdom. It's fine not to do things. And sometimes it's okay to go with a status quo that all the major players somehow understand and can plan around than to be adventurous, particularly in this very, very complicated theater like Syria, where a lot of stuff either can go wrong or will force us to act in a way that we don't want to act. So I don't necessarily think that's, and I'm not too far from it, to be honest with you. The question you raise about this kind of delegation of CT to, you know, Iran and Turkey and Russia and the regime. I'm not sure exactly what their calculus would be uh, about how important, like destroying ISIS, for example, or preventing a resurgence of ISIS is. I do think there's a capability problem, though, which is uh, that, uh, that they may not be able to do it or do it well enough. And I do, frankly, very much believe if we had not intervened in 2014 against ISIS, things would have been much, much, much worse. And I don't know how far or how long it would have taken for people to roll back. And even with that, we actually didn't do that much in terms of assets and you know commitment, but we got the job done. And uh, we did it, of course, largely with local cooperation, but we did it. Uh, and I'm not sure they can, you know, the regime is a basket case. The Russians don't seem to care that much. The Russian way of dealing with it will just be to carpet bomb. Yeah, to bomb, to bomb population zones. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Including, you know, refugee camps where they suspect ISIS activity is, is recalled. Oh, of course, of course, that's what, they, that's what they've done. So sometimes it's fine, you know, you hold on to a situation and you see what changes. As long as it's not 150,000 troops in Iraq, you know, this is, we can have these few guys sitting around in Syria, doing uh, this kind of serious work. I also frankly think there's a bigger philosophical problem here from an American point of view about how much risk we're willing to sustain and tolerate. So if you looked at the way we reacted to the ISIS issue, it was largely a kind of zero-sum, single-minded, I'm not gonna say panic, but a rush, so to speak, uh, because we found it completely intolerable that a group like this would get away with some of the things that they were doing. And that's fine, you know, obviously we had to destroy ISIS. Uh, but I think right now we're having this argument about, oh, we should disengage, and, you know, end the endless wars. But I wonder to myself, okay, so how was America going to react if somebody comes and blows something up in Washington or in New York? And look, if I believe that the Americans would be like, you know, stiff upper lip, whatever, it happens, that's life, then okay, I can understand. But I actually don't think the United States would react that way. I think it would get go back into whatever mode it's been in, and then we'd be doing all this again. I, I actually think that America and Americans have not come to terms with this contradiction. The, that's why we end up with these stupid conversations, frankly in policy. Well, yeah, I mean, a combination of short attention spans and again, you know, a, a highly mediated narrative, which is usually wedded to domestic politics. I mean, God knows in the last four years that the most frustrating thing for me is all of the complexities and contradictions of what is happening in the Middle East suddenly became very clear to a lot of people who simply never paid attention, or if they did, found themselves in a very opportunistic position of just filtering it all through, you know, the prism of we don't like Donald Trump, so anything he does must be wicked and stupid. Most of the things he did do were wicked and stupid. However, you know, 
I mean, Qasem Soleimani was a big surprise to me. And frankly, I, I was girding my loins to see what the response was going to be. There hasn't been much of one yet, but I'm also still very wary that there will be, whether it's another Burgess bombing, uh, which was retaliation for Mugnia, which the Israelis did, or who knows? Yeah, look, I, I completely, obviously, I agree with you uh, about the domestic issue. I also agree with you that it's made consensus about basic strategic stuff right. almost impossible. And frankly, this is still an imperial power with a very broad set of interests. And if you can't get your house together over kind of very basic things, or at least, you know, if, if not everybody wanted to kill Soleimani, I get it. But hey, we killed the guy. And, you know, he's, he's also, he has a lot of American blood on his hands and he's an enemy of the country. Maybe let's not make it, you know, some sort of kind of betrayal of the republic. But that's what happened. And it's very disillusioning for somebody working in policy. Yeah. And, you know, I just for me, the frustration is our enemies don't sit around and bellyache and have factions within their bureaucracies leak stuff against each other to the extent that we do, such that the conversation almost becomes our friends are our real enemies and our adversaries are our friends we just haven't made yet, which just seems to me, again, you know, America becomes this almost a Middle Eastern country in the sinister Alice in Wonderland co component that I was alluding to earlier. I think Americans and Westerners in general do like to do this to themselves more than other people do. They carry a lot of a lot of guilt about what they, you know, collectively done. And of course, we have done a bunch of awful stuff, like all human enterprises. But uh, I think we've also gotten a bit comfortable with the world being more or less manageable for us, whereas actually it's getting more difficult and more dangerous. And we don't have, you know, that kind of Machiavellian vertu, so to speak, of being, you know, bold and being cunning and uh, and taking action. Uh, we're not very good. And it's a, it's sometimes a major disadvantage. Sometimes it's good, but uh, sometimes you have to, you know, meet their, your enemies on their own terms, and you have to have a, a broad consensus on the policy side of what constitutes basic American strategic interests and how you take care of them. And that actually frightens me more than whatever, frankly, mostly second-grade enemies can throw at America abroad. And I suppose a lot of this is also a function of not having a power of equal stature to our own which we had had for the duration of the Cold War. And so there was this bi bipartisan consensus, by and large, I mean, with fluctuations in it, from detente to containment and there and back again. And so now it's this kind of manic depressive approach dealing with hyperpowers or, you know, belligerent mini powers, or, I mean, in the case of Turkey, somebody we consider an ally that's behaving not so much like an ally 50% of the time. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, there's no denying Americans are completely exhausted with the Middle East as a subject, as a place that we have to involve ourselves with, as a place from which emanates those who wish to do us harm, or as, so goes the perception. And I mean, the reality, if you look at clearly the last 20 years, I go back and forth with myself between, I don't blame them. Like, I want to think like the man in the street and just kind of wash my hands of it all and say, you know, fuck it, let's have done. But I think I've learned too much that I can't forget at this point, that even if we're not interested in the region, the region is always interested in us. And that that's an, an unending dialect. It, it will never be put paid to unless America really just closes up shop and, you know, decides to transform itself into, I don't know, Colombia or... Not an empire. Yeah. Burkina Faso. Yeah, exactly.
Yeah, you know, as I spent more time here, I've gotten more sympathetic to, I don't want to caricature, you know, the average American, but the kind of mainstream sentiment, uh, <laughs> mainstream sentiment of people. And I've become a bit more sympathetic to the fact that you can't have a foreign policy that will constantly put you at odds with the population. You need to kind of meet people halfway a bit. And you don't have to just follow whatever people want, obviously not. But you can't go on adventures that four years down the line or three will come and kick you in the ass and probably result in you being exited from the White House and make the whole thing pointless anyway. Right. Which is why I'm fine with mostly the you know low profile, slightly less ambitious policies towards the Middle East, especially when there isn't much in play, in a sense, like strategically speaking. Now, if we woke up tomorrow... And Egypt, for example, was undergoing some kind of revolution or civil war, you know, 100 million Arabs, very important country. Then, no, I would not tell you, yeah, you know what, whatever. Because then there'd be a question, you know, what do we do about this? Which is why, to me, the parallel that people made between the Iraq War in 2003 and intervention in Syria always really annoyed me. Because uh, the Iraq War in 2003, uh, which I did oppose for my own reasons, was completely something you had to sit around and have a lot of spare time and energy to decide to do. Right and impose on this other country and, and region geopolitically. Uh, whereas the Syrian civil war, I mean, we did not start the Syrian civil war. <laughs> it happened because of the dynamics between the population and the regime. It was up to us to say, where do our interests lie and what are our options? And that will happen again in the Middle East. The Middle East is not gonna be static. Right. But in the meantime, you know, it's fine to be cautious. Frankly, we also have a lot of other problems. I mean, it's not just, uh, you know, the Middle East. It's not even, from my perspective, I sincerely actually worry about China and what's, what's going on in that country terrifies me. Yeah. So uh, I have some sympathy for this idea that, of course, I'm from the region, I'm attached to it, and I care about it, and it's important. So I'm not saying forget the Middle East. But I do think we need some bandwidth because this is a real problem. It's a civilizational problem, and it will have to be dealt with at some point. It's fine to keep 900 special forces guys in Syria. That's not going to stop us from dealing with China. But uh, also be careful, you know, that's kind of my, my perspective on things. Well, I mean, it, we come full circle at the end of this conversation because we opened with a piece about an occupying power in the region that certainly was not afraid to exercise its power to the fullest and to exploit the resources of the, that the country was occupying and so on and so forth. And, you know, America really is the only empire to set foot in the Middle East that, as you say, I mean, you have to have a lot of spare time for these ventures. I mean, occasionally we act like Ernest Hemingway, but we really think and behave more often than not like Woody Allen. Neurotic, self-loathing, self-doubting, you know, the first to beat up on ourselves and express, you know, all the, the shortcomings and vices that we, uh, that we indulge in. And yeah, I mean, you just, you cannot behave like that, especially in this part of the world. It just, it, it will never work. And our enemies are just going to take advantage of it. If you don't have the stomach, it looks like cynicism, but really it is wisdom from people like Robert Ford, Fred Hoff, the ambassadors who've spent decades who have the language, they know the culture, they've had the diplomatic postings, they came in with all the idealism and all the kind of grit and pluck to do what they believe is American values-led foreign policy. <laughs> and now it's, I mean, goodbye and good luck, you know? I think there's wisdom in that. And I also think, frankly, I mean, foreign policy is just a fundamentally unsatisfying thing. It never goes your way. It's not for people who want that kind of catharsis and, uh, and self-satisfaction. It doesn't deliver it unless you're crazy and you end up creating a lot of damage and killing a lot of people. In my lifetime, the only time I think if you were 
a foreign policy professional with a, a coherent worldview that you had any unmitigated joy was 1989, if you were dealing in the Cold War and, and the Soviet <laughs> issue, right? I mean, there's no denying that, you know, if you were there for the Berlin falling, if you were in Poland and, you know, Anne Applebaum has written a book about this, that, that euphoria, that sort of it's midnight at the grand ball, that was a real moment. And yet the, yes. the, the decades since have been nothing but one failure of expectation, setback, disillusionment after another, to the point at which your friends and allies who helped bring about that midnight at the ball kind of feeling have now become stark raving lunatics. They're like on the other side, you know? Yeah, I'm not interested anymore. It's funny that we should come back to this point because my equivalent to your 89 moment is 2005 when we collectively kicked the Syrians out uh, and that was euphoric. Having said that, given what you said about Ford and Hoff, if that were to happen today, rather than when I was 22, I would not have been as euphoric and I would be much, much more worried about a hundred other things. So that's just experience, I guess. <laughs> the one anecdote from that moment that in hindsight, you know that this is just gonna go so badly is Walid Jumblat basically giving credit to Paul Wolfowitz. You know, I mean like Jumblat is Jumblat and of course like, he, you know, Sure, what he sure. says on Tuesday is, is the opposite of what he said on Monday. But, you know, the guy who has a big portrait of Lenin hanging in his house in the Shouf, that, that should have been a moment where people were like, all right, wait a minute here. What the fuck is going on? And, you know. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That was the warning sign. I knew it was going to be a fun conversation. And, you know, you and I, we, we have these conversations on a daily basis and they're like therapy sessions, primal scream therapy sessions. So I figured it would be at the very least morbidly fascinating to people to hear them. Anyway, well, we both have to get back to work in our day job, so I'm going to leave it at that. As I say, the Middle East is never done with us, and the next big uh, crisis or event that everyone wants to talk about, come back on and let's have it out again. I look forward to it. Thank you, Michael. All right. Cheers.